Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Thrilled that you're here. Over the last four weeks, we've been doing a series out of Luke chapter 15. Um, The opening three verses of Luke 15 give us the context. Um, Three verbs really are key verbs to give us the whole picture. The Bible tells us that Jesus had been teaching, dubious characters had been gathering, and the Pharisees were murmuring. When the Bible talks about dubious characters, you have to understand um, the King James has publicans, and it doesn't mean hotel proprietors. Other people have tax collectors, and it doesn't mean IRD officials. Tax collectors at that time were collaborators. They were Jewish people who had thrown their hat in with the Romans and were fleecing their own people. And they were the scum of the earth. They were the lowest of the low. Uh, I mentioned this morning, after the Nazis pulled out of Paris, after they were driven out by the Allies during World War II, uh, apparently Parisians took vengeance on those who were considered to be collaborators, and they killed 10,000-plus fellow Parisians, people who had been collaborating with the Germans. That's the strength of the feeling uh, regarding these, these people. So... When, when you say Pharisees were murmuring, it's, it's easy to actually feel some sympathy for them. They had something to murmur about. Why would Jesus be gathering with these kinds of people? Given that that was the circumstance and people were murmuring, the Bible tells us that Jesus told them a parable. Parable singular, and then he seems to tell them three stories. He tells them about a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. He tells them about a woman looking for a lost coin. And then he tells them about a father with two lost sons. Actually, uh, a lot of commentators suggest that it's not three separate parables, but it's one parable with three movements in it. The first movement, concentrating on the shepherd and sheep, is actually about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as the good shepherd seeking to save those who were lost. The second portion of the parable, which is the woman looking for the coin, speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, searching for those who have a heart toward God. And the third movement in the parable really is about a remarkable father. One of the things you've got to know about this parable is while we read it, and particularly the last part where it deals with the prodigal son, it kind of warms our heart, you know, and and if you're a parent with a prodigal, it can bring a tear to your eye. It wasn't that way for Jesus' original listeners. They weren't warmed in their heart. Jesus didn't tell them that to warm their hearts. He told them this parable to shatter their categories. And over the last four weeks, I've been diving into this parable and trying to bring out the cultural understanding of Jesus' listeners. The Pharisees were, were, by the time he got to movement three, they are simmering with anger. The first part of that parable is an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation with them as he says to them, you have been negligent shepherds. The second is... uh, 
presents a woman as the key protagonist of the story, and that, that offended them. Now he tells them this part of the story about this remarkable father who breaks all kinds of rules. He is not your classic Middle Eastern patriarch. He breaks all kinds of rules. Last week we talked about the, the son coming home and all the rules that he broke in order to welcome that boy back. I'm not going to go back over it. Uh, I want to focus on the next part of the parable. When, when we read this parable, we tend to imagine that the spotlight is firmly on this young prodigal. That's why we, we, when we tell the story, we almost always ignore the older brother. The spotlight is firmly on the lostness of the younger brother. I suspect that Jesus never intended the spotlight to be uh, exclusively thrown onto this younger brother. In fact, the Bible tells us he told the parable for the Pharisees, not, not for the dubious characters who had gathered around him. And I think Jesus is indicating that there are two kinds of lostness. There is the lostness the younger brother lostness, but there's also older brother lostness. As I say, we've considered younger brother lostness and the father's dramatic and somewhat scandalous response to him. In this message, I'd like to wind up our series by considering what older brother lostness looks like and the father's remarkable response to that boy as well. So verse 25 picks up the, uh, the, the son has come home and it says, Now the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home because he's received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found." Now, we haven't officially met the older brother up until this point, but Jesus' listeners already know quite a bit about him, not because of what he has done, but because of what he has failed to do. As I explained in an earlier message, when, a relationship, when the relationship between the father and the younger son was breached by the younger son's deplorable request for his portion of the inheritance, which, by the way, meant that he wanted his father to die, tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead that I could get my inheritance. So it was a deplorable request. The older brother was expected immediately to step into that breach as a peacemaker. In a culture like this, when a breach occurred, a mediator, somebody who had relationship with both parties, would go directly into action and would move between the two offended parties in a kind of shuttle-like diplomacy, seeking to bring resolution and reconciliation. And the older brother was perfectly placed to fill this role, but he hasn't. And we are deafened by the silence. In the previous two movements of this parable, when something was lost, someone went looking for it. A sheep was lost, a shepherd went searching. A coin is lost, a woman goes looking. Son is lost, someone's supposed to be out there looking. And that someone, that whole group, knows is the older brother. The older brother should be diligently searching for the lost son, but he, he reneges. 
The Jewish audience knew their scriptures. They knew at the beginning of the Bible story, there's another, um, there's another younger brother and older brother, Cain and Abel. And uh, you know the story well enough without me repeating it, but God tells the proud, older, resentful brother, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. And he also failed to fulfill that role. Now, a true elder brother would have said to the father, Father, the younger brother has been a fool and his life is in ruins. I'll go and look for him and I'll bring him back home. If his inheritance has been spent, and I suspect that it has, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense because I am my brother's keeper. But there's silence. Clearly, the older brother has a broken relationship either with his younger brother or with his father or perhaps with both. Because of that breakdown, he refuses to fulfill the role expected of him in this culture. Now, you know the story. After an undisclosed time, the younger brother returns from his exile and he's welcomed back into the family by his father. An expensive display, a humiliating display on the part of the father to welcome him back. And a celebration has begun. The older brother has been out in the field and he returns to the sound of a boisterous, joyous celebration. And true to his character, he's immediately suspicious. I think a son with a normal relationship with his family would have entered the house immediately eager to join the joy, whatever the reason, but not this fellow. He calls for a young houseboy, probably one of the young servants, and interrogates him. In an oriental village, when a large banquet is held, the adults uh, attend, but not, not the children. But the younger boys in particular often would congregate outside the house and join in the excitement of the feast, albeit from a distance. Although not officially invited, they were an inevitable part of a village celebration. And it's probably one of those boys, a houseboy, that the older brother gets and grills him. What's going on? And the idea in the Greek text is he asks question after question after question. What's going on? Well, when did he arrive back? What state was he in? My father did what? There's a grilling going on. And his response to the information that he's given is outrage, and he refuses to go into the house. The message translation of verse 28 says, the older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in, and his father came out and tried to talk to him. In the early portion of the story, it's the younger son who completely humiliates his father. Now it's the turn of the older brother to shame and disgrace his father. What he does is a terrible violation of Middle Eastern culture. This is probably the biggest and most important public event and feast that this father has ever put on, and custom requires the presence of the older son. At such a banquet, the oldest son would have a semi-official responsibility. He would stand at the door and greet the guests as they arrived, and it was a symbolic way of the father saying to his guests, my older son is your servant for the evening. And as the evening progressed, this young man would be expected to move among the guests, offering compliments and making sure that every guest had sufficient to eat and drink. Even if he were unhappy with the state of affairs, custom required him to enter the house and fulfill his role as joint host. He would be expected to physically embrace and congratulate his younger brother and show special honor and deference to him as the honored guest. And when everyone had gone, then and only then could he complain to the father and say that the younger brother should not have been welcomed in this public fashion and that he should never be trusted again in terms of the family business. 
But the older brother refuses to fulfill this expected role and openly humiliates his father, casting a very public vote of no confidence in his father's actions. Quarreling with his father in the presence of his father's guest is an unheard of insult in the Middle East. I've mentioned before, but it's a very hierarchical society, it's a very patriarchal society, and you honour your elders, and particularly you would honour your father. Middle Eastern custom and oriental high regard for the authority of the father made this man's behaviour an appalling insult. If you want a kind of a parallel example, in the book of Esther, right at the beginning of that book, uh, King Ahasuerus summons his queen Vashti to a banquet that he's hosting for his officials. And for some reason, Vashti refused to attend, publicly humiliating the king. His response? Deposing her, divorcing her, she was never seen in his company again. That's how a Middle Eastern authority and patriarch is expected to respond to public humiliation. It gives you some sense of how important it is in a shame-based culture not to humiliate your elders. The father in Jesus' story had every right to act in a similar way to this embarrassed king. Now we have an open breakdown in the relationship between the older son and the father that is every bit as radical as the break between the younger son and the father that took place at the outset of the story. And for the second time that day, the father goes out of his house offering in public humiliation a demonstration of costly and unexpected love. He doesn't go out and retaliate with abuse He doesn't even scold this older son, but he entreats him kindly. And he says, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. You know, the younger son on his return had been stunned and humbled by the awareness of the public price his father had paid to welcome him back in the family. And you might expect that the father's gracious actions to this older son would have a similar effect, but unfortunately it doesn't. Instead of contrition, there's bitter complaint, and he continues to heap insults on his father. He disrespectfully addresses him without a title. He does not say father or esteemed father. He says, look, you. Read the text. That's how you could paraphrase it. He's shaking with anger. Look, you. Just totally disrespectful. You know, the younger son, with all his younger brother lostness, at least had afforded his father that honor. When he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. The father could have disowned that upstart on the spot. And many Middle Eastern fathers would have done exactly that. But this boy is undaunted and he continues. I've slaved for you for years and I've never disobeyed you. This kid is completely out of sync with his father. He's every bit as lost as the younger brother was. The difference between him and the younger brother is simply that the younger brother is estranged and rebellious while in a distant country. This brother is estranged and, re- is estranged and rebellious while he's living in the father's house. Both of them are in a far country. Augustine once commented, a darkened heart is the far country, and it's not only by our feet but by our affections that we either leave or return to thee. This parable forces us to redefine what lostness looks like. Now, we're all familiar with younger brother lostness. 
we know what that looks like. You break the rules, you're indulgent, you're undisciplined. It's, it's, it's not hard to recognize younger brother lostness. When you're in rehab, when you've lost your marriage through your own unfaithfulness, and when you're broke, it doesn't take a gift of discernment to work out you're in a mess. This younger brother knows that he's in a mess. But I suspect the main point of this parable is to help us discern a much more subtle but no less devastating form of lostness. It's the lostness that comes from moral conformity and religious self-righteousness as it is presently being manifest, manifested by the Pharisees who are listening to this parable and to whom Jesus is addressing it. Older brother lostness is even more pernicious because people who fit into this category really realize that they're lost. And if you're lost and you don't know you're lost, then you're doubly lost. Both sons rebelled, one by being bad, the other at least outwardly by being good. He says, I've always obeyed you. And you might be thinking, Don, are you saying it's wrong to be good? Well, quite frankly, that depends. If you're relying on your goodness, on your morality to obtain the favor of God in order to justify yourself before him, then I'm sorry, yes, your good deeds are wrong, or at least they are completely insufficient. You know, the older brother is in effect saying, I've been good, now you owe me. I've slaved for you and you are in my debt. One of the symptoms of older brother lostness is when life doesn't turn out well, older brother types often manifest a significant degree of anger. Something goes wrong and they say, this is not fair. I, I've served you, I go to church, I, I tithe, I deserve better than this. And I want to say to you, we would do well not to push too hard on the notion of what we deserve. The Pharisees are as completely lost as these tax collectors. Charles Spurgeon once commented, If you be lost, my dear hearer, it will be of small avail to you that you perish respectably and were accused in decent company. If you're lost, you're lost. You can be lost in a far country and you can be lost in the midst of the church, in the midst of the people of God. This father has to go out to both sons. He gets a better response from the younger son. The older brother shows in his angry retorts how far he is removed from the family and from his father. He says, this son of yours, and, and I joked this morning and said, you know, it sounds like some married couples when they're having difficulty with one of their kids and they say, do you know what your son did? It's like, I thought he was our son. This, this son of yours, not, not my brother, in verse 29, he says, you never gave me a kid so that I could make merry with my friends. The friends that he references are obviously different from the friends of the family who would have been present at the celebration that's happening a couple of hundred yards away. He moved in different circles, circles that did not include his father and his brother. Emotionally and socially, this older brother's community is somewhere else, and he says so. And the level of disrespect he manifests is shocking. The lack of a title, the bitterness, the ingratitude, the arrogance, the distortion of facts. Notice he says, you, you, this, this son of yours has spent all your money on prostitutes. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said he went off and he had a good time. You kind of wonder, how did he get to prostitutes? You know, sometimes we've got a quick eye for, uh, in others for the things that bother us. 
and there's a distortion, something in this young man's mind going on here. He distorts the facts. There's such a sense of entitlement and unjust uh, accusations. And all of this could cause or should cause an ordinary Middle Eastern father to immediately disinherit him and, and ostracize him. But there's no judgment and there's no accusation from this remarkable father. He addresses this arrogant young upstart with the title of affection and endearment. He says in verse 31, my son. The Greek word is technon. Literally, it means my child or my little one. He's infinitely gracious to him, and yet at the same time, he's infinitely firm. He does not and will not apologize for the banquet, and he does not and will not stop the celebrations. He will not allow this pouting older brother that power. And he says, my son, this brother of yours. I think, paraphrased, I think what the father is saying is, you're still part of this family, and I will not exclude you. It's not too late. You can still come into the party as a rejoicing older brother. Son, for a long time, I have lived with deep sorrow over a, over a lost son. Now that I have him back, must I lose another? There's no answer. Silence. And then Jesus suddenly drops the curtain. It's like, what? Hang on. I want to know what happens. What does he do? I'm, I'm sure that you've seen movies, you know, that end like that and just leave you in your seat stunned and, and what? How did it finish there? That's, that's so unsatisfactory. And that's what's happening in this drama. We're left with a haunting question. Did the father succeed in convincing him? Did he remain alienated and outside both the celebration and the family circle? Or did he repent like the younger boy and go back in? You know, there are a couple of places in the scripture where we are left hanging like that, wondering, what's the outcome? What, what, what's going to happen? One of them is in the book of Jonah. Jonah has four chapters and has definite parallel with Luke chapter 15. In the first two chapters, Jonah is like the younger son, fleeing to a far country. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He takes a boat to Tarshish, as far away from the presence of the Lord as he can go, a far country. The storm in Jonah is equivalent to the famine in Luke chapter 15. And uh, the belly of the great fish is equivalent to the younger son's pig pen. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah gets tafatan, the Middle Eastern word that means he got smart. In the same way that the prodigal in the pig pen got smart, he suddenly realized, here I am perishing, and the servants in my father's house are doing better than me. I'm going back. So Jonah turns around and goes to Nineveh. In the next two chapters, he turns into the pouting older brother. Nineveh responds to his preaching, they repent, and he sits outside the city, you know, simmering with anger, refusing to go in and celebrate with what is transpiring in the city. And God goes to him. He's sitting, sulking under a plant that God has graciously given him to shade him, and he speaks to Jonah and says, and why wouldn't I feel sorry for a great city like Nineveh with its 120,000 people in utter spiritual darkness? What's the answer? curtain. It's like, oh, what? I want to know what Jonah does. I want to know, does he repent? How, how does the story end? No answer is given. Would Jonah be won over by the father's entreaty? We aren't told. And it's so frustrating. There's another place where there's an unsatisfactory ending too, and it's found at the end of Mark's gospel. 
Mark's ending is abrupt and somewhat shocking, and you, you, can, you can read it. Um, the woman come to the tomb so that they can anoint what they think is Jesus' dead body, and they find a great stone rolled away, and an angel appears to them and announces, go tell the disciples that he's risen, and he will meet them in Galilee. And Mark chapter 16, verse 8, finishes by saying, this is the woman, they went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you've got the Gospel of Mark, you're saying, hang hang on a minute, there's there's another few verses after that. Yeah, there is, and they were added later. Most scholars would say that that portion from verse 9 to 20 was added later. And I'm not saying it's it's fraudulent. It's, It's just added by an editor later. And Mark's Gospel actually finishes in verse 8. And verse 8 is wrong on all sorts of accounts. It, it seems completely appropriate. They go out, they don't say anything for fear. It doesn't exactly inspire a whole lot of confidence. In addition, it's grammatically wrong because the Greek ends with a small transitional word, gar, G-A-R. And gar is supposed to lead to something. It's like uh, syntactic hesitation that gets you ready for the next statement. So it's like an MC at a wedding when he gets up and he taps the glass and everyone quietens down and he just stands there and says nothing. It's like, and? What? What are you doing? You're supposed to do something. That's how it ends. All of the guests can be left waiting and confused. That kind of ending, whether it's Luke 15, Jonah chapter 4, or Mark 16, leaves us mid-stride and off balance. Our foot has got to come down, but where is it going to come down? In Mark's gospel, is it going to come down in fear or unbelief? Fear or unbelief or faith and action. It's like Mark stops and hands us the pen and says, write the ending. You, you write the ending to this story. You write the conclusion with your life and your choices. Will it be one of fear or will it be one of faith? And I wonder that Jesus was doing exactly the same thing to the Pharisees to whom this parable is addressed. Jesus ends the parable in the same place as Jonah's story in Mark's gospel, off balance and mid-stride. The ending has to be written by someone, and Jesus, if, if he could, perhaps would hand them the pen and say, you write the end of the story. This is actually about you. How will you finish the story? Now, historically, we know how the Pharisees finished the story. They conspired to have Jesus killed. They were completely unrepentant. They were completely out of sync with their father. You know, I've often commented, as we read the Gospels, it's so easy to describe and imagine and dismiss the Pharisees as the bad guys. And we never, ever imagine that you and I could have those same Pharisaical traits. And I often say to you as a congregation, there is a Pharisee that roams around in the heart of every single one of us. You say, no, not me. I wouldn't be a Pharisee. Well, there are a couple of things that you need to be a Pharisee. Number one, you need to, um, you need to believe in the supernatural. Okay? The, the, the Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees were good supernatural people. They believed in, the, in God working. The second thing is they believed in the Scriptures. They believed that the Old Testament Scriptures were the Word of God to the community of God. And the third thing is that they were completely committed to personal holiness. Now, I would want to ask you, I hope that you feel those three 
um, those three criteria. But those three criteria are absolutely essential to be a Pharisee. And each one of us have the potential to be very Pharisaical, moralistically self-righteous as we look at other people who don't quite measure up. And I suspect that elder brother lostness is a lot more common in the church than we might imagine. It's what I think stops a lot of younger brothers actually coming home, and I wonder that it's actually responsible for making a lot of younger brothers leave home in the first place. And when you talk to people who have deconverted and left the church, one of the things they'll nearly always bring up is it's places filled with hypocrites, people who say one thing but don't do it. I always respond to that by saying, well, there's always room for one more. It's no problem. You know, we are the, we are the community of the broken, after all. When younger brothers return, the heart of older brothers is always tested. I don't know how many of you saw the movie The Jesus Revolution. It's been going around the theatres in recent times, and it harkens back to a real move of God that happened during the 1970s, where across the world, including New Zealand, people were swept into the kingdom of God. Karen and I got saved in the middle of that revolution. And we were part of that. We were uh, would-be hippies, and uh, God touched our lives. And when I came to church, hard to imagine, I know, but I had long hair, faded jeans, uh, uh, tie-dyed T-shirt, sandals when I wore them, beads, the whole shooting box. Yeah, I know it's hard to imagine. (laughs) When we came in, as in that movie, there were a lot of people who were like, tut, 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 tut. I'm not sure about these guys. In fact, somebody said to me, you're from the Roman Catholic Church, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. Long hair, jeans. You know, I'm sorry. You need to get your theology straightened out before I'll believe that you're a Christian. And, and uh, a lot of my friends who initially came in enamored with Jesus quickly were turned off by the older brothers in the church. Now, admittedly, we did some strange things. I remember one guy coming in with an electric blanket and he found a three-piece, you know, a three-point plug and he plugged the electric blanket on and turned it on. He wanted to be warm while the sermon was going on. Well, that didn't go down well with the deacons who were responsible for paying the power bill. And they parked in the wrong places and some of them smelt and, you know, and, and, and we, we weren't always welcomed. When people come in, the hearts of older brothers are profoundly tested. And it will be the same for us as God begins to move. We talked a little bit about this after the movie. I remember Chris and I and some of the others saying, what would be in our generation the equivalent of the hippies in that generation? And I wondered if it might be sort of, say, the LGBTQ++ community. What would happen if they came? It's like, tut, 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 what are they doing here? You know, those of you who are fishermen or fisherwomen, when you catch fish, the fish don't jump into the boat filleted and battered. They, they, you, if you want filleted and battered fish, go to Countdown or Pack and Save. You can pull it out of the freezer. But when you catch them, they come slimy, smelling, and between that point and the battered um, fish, there's it, a messy process. People don't come in looking good. They come in like prodigals. And we have to open our hearts. You know, in the past, the church has said, believe, behave, and you can belong. Maybe God, by the power of the Spirit, needs to turn that around and say, belong, believe, become. 
you're welcomed here and the surprising welcome melts the heart which opens them up to belief and the process of becoming. We've got to be careful that the older brother pharisaical self-righteousness rises. And we say, how come these new people are coming in and they're moving in gifts that we've waited for years to see? People come in and suddenly they're praying for the sick and the sick are being healed. They're speaking the prophetic word. They're teaching in remarkable ways. And we're saying, you young upstarts. That's exactly what happened to me. I came into the church and, and, and was invited to teach and, and a very prominent person came to me and said, you know, look, you're a nobody. You've just got saved. You're a Roman Catholic. You've got nothing to teach us. In fact, get out of the public view. And it's like, whoa, far out, you know. We came away battered. And for some of us, for some of my friends, the battering was more than they could take. And they left the family again. Jesus told another parable about a vine dresser, a landowner who needed people to work in his vineyard. And so he went out at the beginning of the day, 5 a.m. in the morning, and he hired as many guys as he could, brought them into the vineyard, and they worked. But as the day was unfolding, he, he realized we aren't going to get the work done. So he went out again and again and again. He went out at 9 o'clock, 12 noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., got, got workers in. At the end of the day, he lined them up, starting with the people who started at 5, and he gave them a day's wages. The guys who had been there all day are rubbing their hands. And thinking, if he gave them, who have worked one hour a day's wage, what do we get? Well, he came down to them, he gave them a day's wage. And they were tacked. We deserve better than that. Can you hear the hiss of the older brother in that? We deserve better than that. We've, we've labored through the heat of the day. We slave for you. It's the same speech. And Jesus says, how is it that my generosity to these new people is so offensive to you? The moralistic older brother that gets real tapped when some young buck comes in and starts doing what I would have liked to have done, but perhaps didn't have the faith for, I don't know. The thing about that story that really has always moved me is Jesus says to them, friends, why would you let my generosity be so offensive to you? And it's the word friends. You see, there was something that those people who had labored all day had that the new people could never have, and it was that they had worked all day with the landowner. They'd spent the whole day with him, and he addresses them as friends. A relationship has been, has been crafted as these guys are laboring in the vineyard, and that's priceless. That's, that's absolutely priceless. There's nothing more important than that relationship. The, the older brother could have had that relationship with his father. He stayed in the house all of that time, and instead of cultivating a relationship with his father so that the father would say to him, you're not just my son, you're my friend. He's so out of sync. We have to be so careful that the older brother, that older brother lostness doesn't, just rise up to grip our own hearts. How will we respond? As, when, and if God moves significantly and brings in people that, don't ha that have gifts that we don't have, how will we respond? 
we need to be so careful that there is not something of the tarnish of older brother lostness that still remains with us. And gratitude is a great counter to that. It's a great counter to that. Be so thankful that you get to be with the landowner for all of this time. Musicians, would you come? We get to, end, we get to write the end of our story. We get corporately to write the end of Gateway's story. And I pray that it'll be such a good ending, that we will write it with faith, with warmth, with acceptance, with rejoicing, with gratitude, with thankfulness. Let's stand. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.